Well, good morning to you. Let's try that again. Good morning to you. Yes, good morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Johnny, if we haven't met before. Uh, Pastor David, who normally preaches this service, uh, is here, so you've probably seen him, but uh, he's taking a break this weekend from preaching, and uh, I have the absolute honor and pleasure to get to be here with you this morning uh, and share this message with you. Normally, uh, I, you can find me at 11 o'clock uh, in the well or the well cafe. That's where I get to preach on a normal basis. Uh, but through the magic and wonder of video, uh, I will be there uh, with them in digital form uh, this morning. So uh, I'm just very happy to be here with you and to get to share with all of our services. It's a joy to be in church as it always is, uh, to hear people singing, uh, to hear people uh, greeting one another uh, in love. It's just, it's an awesome thing. So anyways, if you brought your Bible with you, uh, you can turn to Genesis chapter 39, as you heard in our song this morning. That's where we're going to be. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat in front of you that you can grab. If you're using that blue Bible that we have provided there for you, you're going to find our verse today on page 63. We'll get to that in just a minute. This is week two of our three-week series called Legacy. And in this series, what we want to do is reflect a little bit on our own lives and the legacy of our lives. We want to look at the stories that our lives are telling through the lives that we're living. Looking at the story that our lives are telling through the lives that we're living. We began this series with a simple definition, just a, a chance for us to kind of get on the same page of what legacy is. And that definition is this, that a legacy is the mark that one life leaves on another. A legacy is the mark that one life leaves on another. Now we certainly know that legacies uh, could be uh, a mark left on many lives. And they certainly have the potential to significantly impact entire communities or even the whole world. But the legacy, the mark is actually transmitted from one life to another. It's not left onto the ground or into the culture. It's transmitted through lives. Now that concept uh, of transmission from one life to another, that's what we're going to talk about a little more in depth next week. Last week, we began this series by looking at the beginning of Abraham's story and the legacy of faith that his life left on the world. And one of the things that we took away from that message was this, is that our legacies begin and end at the point of our personal decisions. Legacies begin and end at the point of our personal decisions. And for Abraham, it was choosing from the very beginning that his life was going to be lived by faith in God. That's what defined the beginning of his life and the rest of his life. That he chose from the beginning to live a life, faith, uh, live a life uh, by faith in God. This week we're going to take a little closer look at that statement. That legacies begin and end at the point of our personal decisions. We're going to look at the decisions we make in our lives and how we make them and the direction that our lives are traveling. And to do that, we're going to take a look at the life of Joseph. Now, you had a nice play here, uh, a scene from the play this morning to, to show you that, and just in case you're still confused, this Joseph is not the Joseph from the Christmas stories, right? It's not Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. This story actually took place about 2,000 years prior to that story. This is the Joseph with the colorful coat. He's the great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Then Jacob had a son named Joseph. Jacob actually had 12 sons. Joseph was number 11. Uh, and so the story of Joseph in Scripture, is, it's one of the greatest 
in Scripture. If you haven't had a chance to read the entire story of Joseph and you want a little extra credit church work, uh, you can do that this week. The Joseph story begins in chapter 37 of Genesis, goes all the way through the end of Genesis, chapter 50. And for a little more context, when Joseph's story ends, the Moses story begins, right? So uh, that gives you a little idea of where this is taking place uh, in our history. So Joseph's story, it's one full of extreme highs and extreme lows. And it ends with this most excellent expression of, of grace and redemption. It truly is a remarkable story. And what's remarkable about it is that throughout these highs and lows, Joseph makes very clear, very confident decisions. It's how he handles these highs and lows. And we'll take a look at a very specific situation in just a minute. It's the decisions that he makes in the midst of great success and extreme disappointment. This is what makes Joseph's remarkable story so remarkable. His story begins, as we see it in chapter 37, uh, we find out that, that Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. And that's good, if you're Joseph, to find out that you're the favorite son. Right? That's a good part of the story. The problem was that Jacob was pretty obvious that Joseph was the favorite son. That, that makes it bad. Uh, and when you, when you do this, when you give your son a coat, an ornate coat, a colorful, beautiful coat because he's your favorite, that tends to make uh, the ten older brothers a little bit jealous. So here's a little bonus parenting tip for all of our parents in the room. If you have a favorite child, just keep it to yourself. <laughs> Only one of them wants to know that information. <laughs> the rest of them don't. You may talk about it with your spouse, uh, but just try to keep it to yourself because it doesn't really go all that well. <laughs> so there was obviously some tension in this family. There was some tension in this family. And then Joseph began having these dreams. And in these dreams, Joseph got a, gl a glimpse of the significance of his life, what his life might mean. He sees himself in this position of power and of authority. In these dreams, uh, through the metaphor that's in his dream, he sees his brothers uh, all gathered around him. In one of the dreams, even his mother and father are there too. They're all circled around him and they're bowing down to him. And Joseph, who's 17, in all of his wisdom at 17, decides he wants to share this dream with the family. So he starts blabbing away. He gathers around and says, you will never believe it. I had the most incredible dream everybody it was so lifelike and you were all there and we were gathered around and then you all started bowing down to me isn't that neat everybody it wasn't neat here's a little bonus sibling tip for those of you that have siblings if you have a dream like this keep it to yourself ain't nobody trying to hear that from you never goes well and it didn't go well for joseph because his brothers fueled by jealousy uh, concocted this plot to fake Joseph's death and then sell him off into slavery, and they pulled it off. It worked. Some merchants came by. They sold Joseph to these merchants who took him to Egypt and eventually sold him to a guy named Potiphar. And this is where we're going to pick up our story directly from Scripture here in chapter 39. You found it. Now, what you need to know really quick about this is that this is taking place in Egypt. And at the time, Egypt is the most powerful nation on earth. And he is sold to a guy named Potiphar, who isn't just some anybody, right? He uh, is one of Pharaoh's officials. In fact, he is the captain of the guard, so he's kind of a big deal. So this is where we'll pick it up here in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. 
And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. We'll pause there. It seems like things are going pretty well for Joseph. This terrible situation, this terrible act that happened to him, the terrible way that his brothers treated him, an unspeakable act. Could have been the end for Joseph, right? He had this dream and he maybe thought, well, it was just a dream. Maybe this isn't me. And yet, Joseph, remaining faithful to that, is beginning to succeed even in the midst of this tragic situation. And, and what's, what's, what's interesting to me is how obvious it is to Potiphar that the Lord was with Joseph. That Joseph's life in some way exudes this faith in God. It's very obvious to Potiphar. And if you read the entirety of Joseph's story, it's obvious to everybody uh, who encounters Joseph. And people are beginning to take notice of Joseph, of his faithfulness and the success that he has. We'll continue. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. See, like I said, things are going really well for Joseph. Potiphar left him everything, which I assume means access to his home gym here, right? He gets to lounge out by the pool whenever he's done with his stuff, right? Get a tan in that Egyptian sun. Joseph's motto is probably be faithful in your work and in your work out because it's time to get swole, right? This is what Joseph wants to do. Like he's, he's handsome, right? And he's well built. Uh, things are looking up for Joseph. Verse 7, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Uh-oh. This is one of those situations that you would see in a, in a movie or maybe even real life, uh, unfortunately, far too often, where things are looking up for somebody. They are experiencing success and power and authority, and pe people begin to take notice. People are attracted to that, and uh, this temptation arises. This situation arises that is no good for anybody involved. And too often we find people find, fall prey to this situation. They fall down in this situation. They make wrong choices that they will regret for the rest of their lives in this situation. Let's see what Joseph does. Verse 8. But he refused. Way to go, Joseph. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in that house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day by day, he refused to go to bed with her uh, and even to be with her. Joseph, making good choices. Way to go, Joseph. Notice that he even sees that there's this temptation even being around her. So he doesn't even want to be with her. He tries to avoid her at all costs because he does not want to fall prey uh, to this temptation. Let's continue on. Verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. 12. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. And when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants and she said this, look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. 
He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. And then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story that his wife had told him, saying, this, uh, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners are confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Like I said, what's remarkable about Joseph's story is the decisions he makes throughout the ups and the downs. The decision he makes after being sold into slavery, being sold to Potiphar, and how that he is going to approach his work and his life there. The decision he makes in the situation with Potiphar's wife. And as you find on and on and out, he makes difficult decisions in good times and in bad. So what was it? How does Joseph make these decisions so confidently? How does he so clearly know what to do? Why didn't Joseph give in to the temptation there with Potiphar's wife? I mean, he certainly could have. He was experiencing success. He was a well-built, handsome man. I'm sure she was beautiful. The invitation was there, but according to our text here, Joseph made a decisive decision. I mean, it wasn't even a consideration for him. It was an immediate no because Joseph knew beyond a shadow of a doubt the things that he would do and the things that he wouldn't do. How does he have that strength to make those decisions in his life? How does one have the strength to make the right decisions in life even when they're not sure the direction that those decisions will take them? Because you would have to assume here with Joseph that he knew either decision, a yes or a no, was going to put him in a bad spot. So how does he have the strength to make the decision he knows is right, even when he's not sure the direction that decision is going to take him? Well, there's two things, and I think the first thing is this, that like Abraham, as we looked at last week, Joseph's life was lived by faith. And when somebody commits to live their life by faith in God, that comes with this sense of morality, a sense of what's right and what's wrong, a sense of honesty and integrity. And, and Joseph had that, and, and, and I think those things fueled the decisions that he made in his life. If you look back, like I said, if you look back over the, this scripture and the whole story of Joseph, it will be obvious to you as the reader just like it's obvious to everybody who encounters Joseph, that the Lord is with him. And that faith is such an important part of his life. And that's how he chooses to live day in and day out. But I think there's something more than that. Because unfortunately in this world, there's a lot of people that seek to live their life by faith in God. Honestly, earnestly want to live their life by faith in God. And yet still lose sight of who they are, who they're called to be. And fall into traps and temptations all the time. And not just situations like we have here uh, in, in Genesis 39. All kinds of things. Chemical dependency. Adultery. All types of things in our life that can creep in and tempt us. And take us away from that which God has called us to be. 
So I think there's something more here with Joseph because Joseph was in a pretty tough spot. How did his faith hold strong? I think for Joseph, it's his sense of direction. Not his ability to chart his path by the moon and the stars and uh, like Bear grills out in the woods, right? For Joseph, it was a sense that he knew where his life was going to end up. So he knew how to get there. He knew where he was going, so he knew how to get there. And this sense of direction props up his faith. Props up the decisions he's trying to make in the midst of trial, in the midst of, in the midst of temptation. It reinforces that sense of right and wrong, that sense of honesty, integrity. It reinforces that so he has the clarity and confidence to make these decisions going forward. He knows where he wants to end up in his life. So he makes decisions based on the direction that's going to get him there. Joseph has this sense of his life's destination so he can base his daily decisions on the direction that takes him to that destination. And I think this is our lesson for us today as well. The decisions we make are based on the direction of our lives, which is determined by our destination. The decisions we make are based on the direction of our lives, which is determined by our destination. In other words, when you know where you want to end up, then you can figure out how to get there. When you know where you want to end up, then you can figure out how to get there. But if you're unclear about the destination, if you're unclear where, you're, where you want your life to head, if you are unclear about the story you want your life to tell, then we are more prone to wander. We are more apt to be distracted. We are more susceptible to temptation that will lead us off the path that will take us where we want to go because we're not even sure where that path is. We just follow our whims. In his book, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, Dr. Stephen Covey identifies seven key habits or mindsets that have inspired and influenced people, business people, teachers, parents, you name it, for the past 25 years. And in that book, out of these seven habits, the second habit that he identifies and that he recommends is this. Begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. Covey says, to begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you're going so that you better understand where you are now so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. Now the sense of beginning with the end in mind has helped people uh, when they think about their daily productivity uh, at work or at home. To begin with the end of the day in mind, to know where you want to be, it helps you get there and prioritize your day. It's helped people with projects, when they, whether big or small projects that they want to accomplish. They visualize what the project is going to look like. They know what the end of the project wants to be. So then you know how to design the steps to get you there. It's helped parents and, and, and families plan their families out uh, year by year, week by week, day by day to understand this is what we want our family to be. This is what we want our family to look like. And so we can order our steps Accordingly, And I think that's important for us to hear about our whole lives, our legacies as well. And I think Joseph understood this. He knew his life's destination. He had seen it in a dream. He knew that his life one day was going to bear great significance. That he was going to hold this position of power and authority one day. And he was seeing those things happen even in the midst of trial, in the midst of heartache and hurt. See, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and yet was undeterred from his life's destination. 
That could have easily been a point where Joseph gave up, but he didn't. And so Joseph rises to the top of Potiphar's household, hold a special place of power and influence and authority there. And faced with a tough decision, he makes the right choice, and yet it still earns him a spot in jail. Again, this could have been Joseph thinking, well, this was just a dream. I guess this wasn't meant to be. He could have given up, and yet he remained undeterred from his life's destination. He gained favor with the warden, eventually gained uh, favor with the pharaoh. The most powerful person in the most powerful nation on earth. He gains favor with the pharaoh. He becomes to pharaoh what he was to Potiphar. He's basically running all of Egypt. He becomes the second most powerful person in the most powerful nation in the world. And that's not even the best part of Joseph's story. Because as he is there running Egypt, he is getting them through a famine because of his wisdom and his success. And his family, Joseph's family, travels to Egypt because of this famine. And Joseph comes face to face with them again. Finally, Joseph has an opportunity to exact his revenge on the people that sold him into slavery. The people that did this terrible thing to him. Finally, look at me now. Look who I am now. And look what you did. Now I get to make you pay for it. Joseph has an opportunity to use his power and his authority and his influence to get back at those that did him wrong. Is that what Joseph does? No. Instead, Joseph sees this as an opportunity for grace and redemption. And he leverages that power and that authority that he has been granted to heal a broken family. To heal the hurt that existed. When he, by our human standards, had every right to not do that. Every right to act, feel however he wanted toward them. Instead, he, he leverages that influence and authority to heal the hurting there. He stepped across the line that was drawn. When it should have been them. They should apologize first. And yet he steps over the line. All because he knows where he's going. He understands that that dream about people bowing down to him did not end with him being the second in command to Pharaoh. It was all building up to that moment where he met his family again. And he got to be the bigger person. He got to be the one to extend the grace. He got to be the one to be the healer. Let me illustrate this in a different way. The picture I'm about to show you on the screens uh, is the famous David by Michelangelo. Now, the David, do we have that picture? There it is. <laughs> now, the David, it's a 14-foot-tall statue of the biblical hero, David, carved out of solid marble. David did this when he was 26 years old. Can you believe that? I wasn't doing that at 26. At 26 years old is when he first placed the hammer and the chisel to this blank block of marble that stood before him to create this masterpiece. Now, Michelangelo was already a famous artist. Everybody knew who he was. He had already done some pretty remarkable work, some very famous work that stands to this day. But I don't think anybody knew, including Michelangelo, that one day this would be probably, arguably, the most iconic piece of art in history. Giorgio Vasari, a 
16th century Italian painter, architect, historian, once said about the David that no other artwork is equal to it in any respect. With such just proportion and beauty and excellence did Michelangelo finish it. To this day, still, millions of people from all over the world travel to this place to see this statue. I was talking with one church member who's seen uh, the David multiple times in person. And what he told me was this, that there are hundreds of statues all over Florence and Rome. But the David hypnotizes you. You're mesmerized by its beauty and its perfection. Sculpting was Michelangelo's true love, and he was obviously very good at it. But when Michelangelo set out to carve this masterpiece, when he was commissioned to take his hammer and chisel and create something this beautiful that depicted the story, uh, a story from our scriptures, Michelangelo didn't look at that piece of block, grab his hammer and chisel, and just start chiseling away, hoping something remarkable would come out of that stone. He didn't grab that stuff and just think, I'm going to start, go ahead and get to work here and, and eventually I'll be inspired by something and then I can make something beautiful and great that the world throughout history will probably come to visit and see. Now these are Michelangelo's words about his approach to his art. He says this, in every block of marble I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action. I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison that lovely apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine have seen it. When Michelangelo looked at this blank block of rock, he could see that David inside of it. Every detail, every curve, he could see it. And so when he set upon that rock with his hammer and chisel, because of his incredible ability to see what the end product would be, to see what that masterpiece would become, to see it, all he had to do was remove the things that didn't belong. It was that simple for him. He could see the end product. He knew what it was going to be. He just removed the parts of the block that didn't belong there, so that we could see what he saw. The decisions we make are based on the direction of our lives, which is determined by our destination. Some of you in this room, many of you in this room, and many people that will be on our church campus throughout the weekend, you're right there. You're doing this already. You've spent so much time, you've invested so much time in prayer and conversation and reflection, you have a good grip on the story that your life is telling. The person that you want to be, the person that God has called you to be. You have an idea of that destination. You can see it. You have charted the course and you are doing your best day by day to remind you of that and to live faithfully into that call. I hope you hear today a word of encouragement to keep going. To stay faithful, to let the Lord continue to guide you down that path because we are all blessed because of it. There are many lives that see that and that interact with that and that encounter you and you're blessing them. You're showing us a way. You're encouraging us and inspiring us 
into life of faith. So thank you for that example and that faithfulness. I know there are going to be some people in this room and some people throughout our campus that look at their life and they feel a bit directionless. They're not sure what that destination is. Maybe you've been praying about it, you've been wondering about it, you've been worrying about it, and yet you just can't seem to get a grip on your life's purpose, on your life's meaning, who you are, who you're called to be. It's time now. This can only be achieved through prayer, engaging God, through reflection, through conversation with others, being guided by others, to see this greater picture and get an outside understanding of where our lives are heading. There are so many resources out there beyond our prayer and beyond our scriptures that are designed to help us with it. There are people that have made this their life goal. This is their calling in life, is to help guide people in determining what that destination is and help them chart that course. There are people that do that. There are books, there are resources out there. If you're looking for one, uh, just off the top of my head, Storyline by Donald, M- Donald Miller is a great resource. I know it's helped many people as they've sought to understand the story that their lives are telling. For some of you here today, and some people that will be on our campus, you need to hear a really hard word this morning and hear it with grace. But you are flirting with some decisions or a decision in your life that is risking your ability to tell the story you want your life to tell. There are some circumstances in your life or maybe there are some habits in your life that are risking your ability to tell the story that you want your life to tell. And my word for you this morning is don't throw away that legacy. Don't throw away that story because of a decision that you might make now. Remember, legacies begin and they end at the point of our personal decisions. This means that legacies take our entire life as we invest in that life, our entire lives to build up, but it can be lost in an instant if we lose sight and lose focus and begin to wander. It might be time for you, if this is you, it might be time for you to take a really hard, honest look at your life and ask some very real questions about who you are, who you're called to be, Where you want to end up in your life. And are you taking the steps necessary to get you there? Or are you taking steps in a wrong direction? Stephen Covey in his book uh, puts it this way. If your ladder is leaning against the wrong house, then every step you take is getting you to the wrong place faster. Lastly, I know some of you in here and maybe some people across our campus look at their life and they feel like it's a giant mess. They've just made a complete wreck of it. The statue that they sought out to, 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 to make, the, the masterpiece that they were trying to carve, is now and just crumbles on the floor. You took that block of marble, you saw it, you put on a blindfold and just started hacking away at it. You had no idea where you were going. You had no idea what you were doing. And now you're looking at this mess on the floor and you're thinking, I can't salvage this. Nobody can. Everything I wanted to be in life, everything I hoped to be is just crumbled on the floor now. So I hope other people are getting it right because I obviously am not going to add anything anymore because that is what I've added to this world, this crumble on the floor. If that's you, What I want you to know is that we serve and love a God. And there is a God up there that loves us and knows us so much. A God of hope 
and a God of redemption and that there is no life that is beyond that. There is no life that is beyond God's hope and grace and love and salvation and redemption. No life. Metaphors only go so far, right? Our lives aren't actually blocks of marble. They can be redeemed. And what God can do is take that piece and take the pieces out of the floor. And with your help, y'all can make something new out of that. Because that is the great truth of our faith is that God is always making all things new Again, thanks be to God for that. The end result, the masterpiece that you build, might not look like what you originally intended. You might not ever be able to go back to that original picture you had. But there's a new picture. There's a new masterpiece that can be made from the wreckage. A new life can spring forth. There is hope, so please don't lose it. Your legacy is the mark that your life will leave on other lives. And your legacy begins and ends at the point of your personal decisions. So, when you define a direction and determine your intended destination, then you will know what is at stake with each and every personal decision that you make. And hopefully, each one is a step toward that path, on that path, toward that goal that God has given you. Let us pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you for your people who have gathered here to worship you, not only here in this church, but God, all, all of the churches across this great city, all of the churches across this nation and in the world, God, gathered to praise your name, to draw a little nearer to you, to hear a message of your hope and your grace, God, and your truth in our lives. We pray that each one of us, as we, as we look at our lives, we examine the path the, of our lives, God. We pray that we are always seeking your guidance, God. Reveal to us our life's purpose, our, our life's destination, God, the story that our lives are telling. So that we can, with you, God, chart that path and take every step closer to that goal every single day, living by faith in you. And God, though we mess it up some, from time to time, we live each day knowing that your grace abounds for each and every one of us. We thank you for that truth. We thank you for that grace. And we thank you for that hope that comes only from you. In your name we pray. Amen.